Welcome back to another episode of The Frisian Advocate. I'm Angie DePoit. And I'm Scott Kellenhofer. So today we are here with Faye O'Hara, and I think you're all really, truly going to enjoy this story. It's a very inspiring story, and normally when we bring a guest on, we would give you some background, but I think that that might spoil this a little bit for you. So I think we're just going to jump right into talking to Faye. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Faye. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're so glad (laughs) that you were willing to come on and share this amazing story with our audience. So normally I would probably start by asking how Frisians became part of your life and when was that? But I think for your particular story, we have to back up quite a bit because your story really begins well before Frisians. So I just want to start with, tell us a little bit about your background, how life was for you growing up, life with horses, your family, etc. I was introduced to horses when I was five. Uh, my mum were massively into horses. Um, a friend run a riding school and she had um, a livery yard as well. So my mum kept her horse down there and got me in for lessons. And about six months later, my mum um, decided, when I knew the basics, it was time to get me a pony. Um, so she convinced my dad. My dad wasn't very horsey. Um, and we got me a little Palomino Welsh bee. Now, I could just about ride when we got this pony. It wasn't really a first pony. Let's say I spent more time on the ground than I did its back. <laughs> but eventually I learned to stick and ended up jumping. My mum wanted me to do well, my mum jumped, so we got into jumping and horses just massively became my life. That's all I did was school, horses, home, school, horses, home. And from then to 15, I it, yeah, it was just a massive part of my life. But I got involved in young horses quite early because the riding school had a lot of young horses to bring on. And as I were down there and they realised I was this confident rider... They um, started me doing lots of backing horses and being around a lot of problem horses or young horses. And I just had this massive thing for young horses. I just loved them. So when I was 13, my mum finally bought me my own two-year-old. It was a thoroughbred cross cob. um, And I broke it in myself at 13. Wow. So I did a lot of jumping and a lot of all sorts. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did really well with her. Um, I just got jumping before, obviously, what happened. But we were, I were at competitions all the time doing jumping. And me and my mum used to share a horse. Well, I had my baby to break. I were riding my mum's horse and we used to compete together on the same horse at the local shows and we were always first or second so everyone hated us on the, the same horse so and where is local for you where was i mean we know you're from the uk but whereabouts did you grow up at so it was bradford um and the riding school was tong lane end so i spent a lot of time in tong we knew how you grew up and how you got connected with horses and it was quite a family affair it sounds like Something happened to you as a teenager, right, which has really defined your life. Let's let's talk about your accident. So I like to say I was I was at the yard all the time and when I was fourteen, about fourteen I started 
getting a life outside the horses as well. Um, and having friends and stuff. And there were girls down at Yard um, and we used to go out a lot and got involved, well, with boyfriends and stuff, as you do as a teenager, and started rebelling a little bit and um, just just being a normal teenager. <laughs> just normal, you know, life. And, but, yeah, pretty horrible teenager, to be honest with you. And then when I was 15... Uh, it was Easter holidays. We're off from school, and and I did spend my life a lot grounded. Or <laughs> you know, I were, I were, yeah, I was a brat <laughs> to say the least. Um, but when I was fifteen, yeah, we were the Easter holidays, and I'd actually been really, really good this one day. And my mum had said to me, "Let's go and um, get you some new stuff for your horse and stuff." So we went, and I got a new riding hat and all new riding gear. And like I say, I just started jumping the horse that I'd broken myself. We went and did all that. I went down to the yard. I mucked my stable out as normal. I jumped my horse. I went home. I got ready to go out with my friends. And my mum said I could stay out a bit later because it was the Easter holidays and I'd been good. So I did. And I ended up in a car accident with my friends. And... I literally come out of the door. There, there was a big impact and I, the door came off. I landed on my shoulder first and went through the main artery, all the nerves and my collarbone. My elbow was um, more or less, I had a big wound at my elbow where it had burned across the tarmac. So it was like hanging off at the elbow. And then I landed on my I broke my spinal cord at T6, T7, shattered my pelvis, my femur, uh, broke all my ribs nearly, um, and I didn't know if I had a head injury. I was rushed to the local hospital, BRI, and they couldn't do anything for me. They said I had to go to Leeds. All the family had to come and say goodbye to me, basically. It was bad. So all the family came up. I don't remember any of this I was totally out of it I did give um, the address to the paramedics but I, the only thing I actually remember of of the incident was um, blue lights and the police walkie talkies that's the only thing I could sort of remember from after it had happened I remember being in the car before it and everything was fine but afterwards the actual impact and stuff I don't really remember so they had, I was bleeding, my arm was causing me a lot of things and I was just hemorrhaging and, and things like that. So they had a pint of blood to get me to the trauma ward at the other, well, to accident emergency at the other hospital. And luckily they, they did manage to get me there because they'd said to my parents and stuff, we don't know if she's going to make it over there, we've only got one pint of blood, um, don't follow the ambulance, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, they did get me there and they managed to um, stent my arm and they stented my arm, stopped the bleeding and got me sort of stable and it put me in an induced coma. And how long was that for? So I was in the induced coma for three weeks and I think I was quite critical within that time. I think that I'd had my parents up a few times and they told them that they don't know how much brain damage I'd have until I woke up sort of thing. But 
that because uh, I had so many injuries, usually they'd have fixed you back pretty soon and things, but they couldn't they couldn't do what they'd usually do because they had all these other injuries to fix. So within the time of me being in a coma, I think they, you know, tried to get me stable as they can to then do all these operations. About three weeks later, they woke me up, and that were. It, it, it were unbelievable, really. They they had to wake me up slowly because the, fir- the first time they woke me up, which I don't remember, but I must have gone into full panic and just tried pulling all the tubes out of me and everything. And then they must have had to wake me up a little bit more sedated. And I remember waking up and seeing the squares on the ceiling and my mum was sat the side of me holding my hand everyone was sat to my left side because it's on my left side that actually works now and I looked at these ceilings I tried to move and I I had nothing I couldn't move I'm I'm shouting my mum but I couldn't say anything because I had a tube down my throat and you know of life support the I had no voice box um, and my mum was saying to me it's okay it's okay being in an accident she was crying my dad were crying but I realised that they were actually quite happy that I, I recognised who they were, and then I, and then it just hit me that I couldn't I couldn't feel anything, and then all of us I couldn't move my legs, but then all this pain came, and and the machines were, and it literally felt like I'd been hooked up to the electric mains. The pain in my arm and my back and and everything like that, it was just it were unbelievable, and I. I still to this day can remember the pain, but I didn't register what had happened. They said to me, you know, that I'd been in an accident and I broke my back, but I didn't really understand what that meant. And all I were actually bothered about were that my legs were still there because I just thought they'd been chopped off because I couldn't feel them. But anyway, they were. So, yeah, that were that were the initial waking up period. And, and it went on for sort of months of me being critical because every time they went to fix my back and and put the bones back together I know they put the rods in my spine my arm went black my right arm Mm. so they had to keep bringing me back because they didn't want me to lose my arm obviously so it took a while to get me stable again and I had a a blood clot where that were an unreal feeling because people were around me visiting me I was still in intensive care at this point, laid flat because I couldn't sit up because my back wasn't fixed and um, I just couldn't breathe. And it was literally like a scene of a, a program. It was just all these nurses come running up to me and putting masks on and beeps and everything. And anyway, it was a week later when I actually woke up and I'd found out I'd had a blood clot in my lung. So this went on for, I think it was eight weeks in total. I was in six to eight weeks. I I don't actually know. I was in intensive care. And when they finally got me sort of stable and and managed to fix my back, then I could, that was the the biggest stage to get me sat up, to move me then to high dependency. So they did eventually get that done. And and I I got the chance to sit up and actually, talk and for the first time it were absolutely you'd think that after six weeks in intensive care that all you'd want to do is sit up and get out as soon as I sat up sat up it with that I just felt that dizzy and that sick all I wanted to do was lay back down did anybody or did it enter your mind at any point that 
you might never ride again? Or, I mean, had you even had a thought about horses at that time? Yeah, not at that time. That time, I think I was on that many drugs. I were on ketamine, morphine. I were hallucinating. I didn't really register. I don't think what had happened. I were too poorly. But then when I moved, when, when I started coming right, when I sort of at the end of that, and my mum said to me, you know, why it started to sort of explain why I couldn't feel my legs. It sort of, I said, one of the first things that I said, well, well, what about my horses? And my mum says, we'll find a way. We'll find a way. And it was just like, like that, really. And let's just get you better. And let's just get you sorted. Um, and I, I don't think, looking back, I don't think anything really registered at that time. I don't think I knew anything anything that were happening to me. So, I'd, I, you know, I went to high dependency. All, all I really remember about intensive care was I'm talking about Pinderfield Spinal Unit that I'd be going to for rehab. So, yeah, no, I didn't really think much about anything for the first few months. Well, not what I can remember. I just, I, I, it, it, were, it were like it was someone else's life until I got to, I, I had a few more operations, my arm, they um, took nerves out of my legs and a vein out of my leg to replace in my arm, hoping that I'd get some movement and feeling back. So that was the last operation I had. It was a 12-hour operation. And once that were done, I spent two weeks in that ward and I went to Pinderfields and I think that's when it really started hitting me what had actually happened. And this is months down the road, right? This is like three, four months down the road, yeah. I were that I were that poorly, I was delirious. i you know, there were so many things that happened to me. I got overdosed on morphine. Yeah, so many things. I'd I'd get better and then I'd be critical again and then I'd get better and so yeah, the the first three, four months were just yeah, just that. And then when I went to Pinderfields and there were all these people in wheelchairs because it's a spinal unit, it were like, Oh, what's what is this is this life? But even still then I don't think it it really hit home that this were gonna be it for the rest of my life. You've got to think I was fifteen years old, you don't you can't see in front of you, can you, at that age? You don't it, it didn't really it didn't register at all. I I was in there doing rehab, like I say, and I didn't have getting the equipment together, learning about my situation. If anything, I just rebelled. I met a couple of friends in there, a couple of lads that were in wheelchairs, and I felt really popular because all these people were coming to visit me. And I just wanted to go home, to be honest with you. By that point, it was like, right, it's, it, I just want my life back, not realising that what my life were actually going to be. How long was it? How long was your, you know, rehab before you... I was in there, so all in all, before I, I was in hospital eight months. So I did four months sort of just getting better and then four months rehab. And then I went home and that's when, that's when life started really hitting me what had happened and I wanted my horses back and, and I couldn't. And yeah, I went home to a dining room. So I had a dining room with a hospital bed and I could literally wheel in. I couldn't turn round in that bedroom. I could wheel in and wheel out. So I had an electric chair because I could only move one arm. 
I couldn't get a drink myself. So I went home to a house where I'd grown up and I couldn't get in my bedroom. I couldn't, I just literally couldn't do anything. It were, that's when it really started hitting me and it started hitting me that I couldn't have a horse and my life were now just confined to my house, really. I couldn't get in anyone's car as a passenger. So we had a wheelchair accessible van that were awful and it reminded me of an horse getting loaded into an horse box because it was just this big ramp I was just launched in and signed back on my own and I hated going anywhere in it because I felt so disabled because I, I was like I'm not disabled I'm not disabled and yeah it were it were a really horrible time and I deleted it well most people out of my life that had horses I totally blocked it out I didn't want anything to do with it and my mum still rode but I wouldn't let her I mean this one months down the line but she went back riding but she wasn't allowed to tell me she was going I didn't want to see her in any jobbers or any horse gear I couldn't handle it it was just right this the only way I could deal with it was literally blocking it out and pretending it never happened so I did that and I still went out with my friends and I started drinking heavily like really heavily and and getting nasty and I hated everybody I hated my friends I turned everyone against me because I hated them I was I, I was bitter because everyone still had a life and and I didn't I I couldn't do anything and I was so lost and alone and I didn't know what my future was going to be like I didn't didn't know if I was going to be able to work I didn't know if I was going to be able to drive a car I didn't know if my house getting adapted took years so you know, getting even in and out of the door, I couldn't do myself. Someone had to help me in and out of the door. And yeah, it were, it were, it were a horrible, horrible time. So at what point did horses come back into view? Because I know that um, at some point after your recovery, you started driving, at right? You know, so how long was that after the accident? Tell us, you know, how that came about. I understand these severe bouts of depression. I really do, and I and I admire your your ability to at this point bounce back. But I'm curious, uh, and I know Angie's kind of this kind of where her question is going. That your passion for horses is that what turned your life around? Is that the conduit that made you have a zest for life again? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. It is. The horses that see the thing is when when something like this happens to you, you lose all purpose. So horses, it, you know, at school they were always what are you going to do after school. It was something with horses. I was going to be a, a jumper. I wanted to break horses and I wanted me on. Yeah, they were all I wanted to do. So for everything to stop with that, and some people mentioned carriage driving and people mentioned riding. You know, you can go to RDA sessions and you can get on them and things like that and I knew with my situation I know there's a lot of para people that do ride but because of my injury to my arm as well and I'm quite a high injury so I'm like chest so I've got no core strength whatsoever so I could go to an RDA group and you know sit on a horse and have a plod round but I broke horses in, now we're doing cross-country, polo, show jumping, you name it. I didn't want to just go back and sit on a horse. I thought that'll fry my brain more. So literally, that's what I convinced myself of, that I didn't want horses in my life, so I need to find another purpose. And I couldn't, and I couldn't find it. I went to college, 
I must have been to college about 18 times and I couldn't, I, I just didn't interest me. I couldn't find the passion. I just stayed with depression and anger and, and everything like that. And eventually a few people had mentioned carriage driving. So it was about, I'd say seven years. I totally blanked horses out. My mum brought my mare that I used to jump down to the yard and down to my house one day she rode down once I started accepting a little bit and, and I saw this horse and it absolutely ruined me I didn't know what to do near it I don't know if you've ever sat at the side of a horse because I don't think I did when I were able-bodied but when you're actually sat at the side of an horse the change the massive you're not in the it, it's just totally different experience so that put me off again for a little bit because that feeling of heart-wrenching and realizing what's happened and what you can't do it put me off it again for a little bit. And then people kept mentioning, like, say, carriage driving. So I went to an RDA group to do carriage driving. And RDA are brilliant at what they do. And they are, and you can go and, you know, riding for disabled they are fantastic. But for someone who is horsey and has a lot of horse knowledge, they literally sat me on a car and we went for a ride round. And again, they were like, this is me. I want to be older than reins. I want to be doing something. So in the end up, I rang my old yard owner and I said, right, I've done this RDA thing. I've seen the carriages, but I don't want to be at RDA. I'm not a riding school person. Even though this has happened to me, it's not for me. I want to, do you know any driving ponies, anything that's safe? And we'll get a car and I'll teach myself to drive. Because I've never, I've never, dri- I never drove as, as an able-bodied person. I own the road. So um, I knew I had to teach myself to do this. But my, in my mind, my thought process was, well, on a car, everyone's just sat down and they're only using their arms. So I have only got one arm, but you can drive. Surely there's a way to drive one arm. At the end of the day, you're still in the same situation as everyone else sort of thing. And it made me feel a little bit more normal rather than getting on the horse. So I thought I'll have the riding as what I was and start a different discipline I think that'll that'll help me sort of thing so we got this pony and was it a naughty pony like most ponies <laughs> no it wasn't actually it were an app well it was on the ground it were one of them it were an absolute tank it were only 13 hands black and white little gypsy cob and it was so safe in traffic, everything, but leading it, if it saw grass, it were gone. Do you know what I mean? It was, it, it was one of them. It would just drag everyone. I've even got a video on my social media of that pony just drag. It didn't even have to trot. It just walked, but it was that powerful that it just walked through everyone. Um, so we got a little car adapted, and it makes me laugh now because I got this car adapted because I was so anti-disabled. I was not disabled and I didn't want help and I didn't want lifting on and I didn't want this and I didn't want that. So we had a little cart made that had a ramp on that I literally just wheeled on. So someone would have to still harness the horse, although I used to sit for hours just trying to harness. And I did do it. It just took me four hours and everyone was probably in bed bit time. I just got done. <laughs> so... Um, they used to harness for me, but I thought I want to get on it myself. So anyway, they'd literally just have to put a ramp down for me. I'd drive on it. I had a, a little pin on my chair, the same as I do in my car, that I just drove into and it locked my chair. So 
I started driving that and, and it was an amazing feeling um, to be on my own horse and be able to just go out and do it. It was frustrating because I was back on a plod, but it was better for me to be doing it that way. I don't know what, I, I'd looked into competitions. I knew there were competitions out there, but I wasn't really sure on how the hell you got into it or what you did. So I literally just drove for about a year or two like that, and my mum and stuff used to go riding with me in the car. What did everybody think of this? Did they think that you were crazy or that you were so no, brave? Or what was the reaction? To be honest with you, with him, no one really, everyone down at the yard were really, really supportive. And they, they're quite, like, they all knew the pony, you see, as well. And it had done its job and it, it was sound. And so everyone were quite supportive of that. It was when my ambition and my ideas, people started um, getting a little bit worried for me. Because I do get bored very quickly. And they are down at the yard, they've got Frisians. Uh, loads of Frisians and they do the weddings and funerals and stuff and they had a stallion and everything and I says one day I said it's all right me driving this you know this little cob but I'm bored already and I want to drive somewhere that's a proper horse and looks good and I'll be honest <laughs> I were really superficial I was really superficial I was like I just want one that looks good and a, pro Frisian. a proper horse a proper horse okay <laughs> I think everybody oh, has that reaction with Frisians, though. I mean, yeah. So I was like, I'd love one of them. And I'd always said as well, I wanted a baby again. I wanted to bring a horse up with my chair because young horses were my thing. So one day it just came about that brought a um, mare over from Holland. And it was Jasper 366's mare. Uh, um, offspring so she's rang me and she says it's a little bit mental this horse um, it's only four it's, no, no, no. it's a little bit you know scared of its own shadow I don't think it's going to make a riding horse I don't think it's going to do well do you want to buy it and breed it because you've always said you want a um, youngster so I thought definitely a bit of me this right. one I definitely want that so, chance of danger, small chance of success, sign you up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I thought, well, we're not going to be driving this mare, but I will breed it, and then I've got the baby. So, and Jan Janet makes me laugh because Janet was fully supportive of this. I bought the horse off Janet. So she did it, and she put it in full to her stallion. And I carried on driving, and obviously it took a year for, for him to come along and I carried on a bit with Isaac. I could only do it in the summer as well because in the winter their yard is, is massive and I was a little bit, I didn't like going down when all teenagers were there because it reminded me of before and stuff and the yard, it was hard to adapt the yard for me, they did the best but again I watched, I felt, well maybe I wasn't watched but I felt watched and it was just difficult. So I could only do it when my mum or anyone else were about and, and I carried on doing bits of driving. Then I, I had a few illnesses in between and a year later, Majestic was born. And What was he, that like? Were you there when he was born? Oh, 
I wasn't there when he was born, but when she rang me and said, well, at first he were a, a filler, which is oh. definitely not. But <laughs> <laughs> she rang me and she says, yeah, you've got a little filler. So I went, oh, yeah. Anyway, two days later, no, it's a cult. So <laughs> at all, when he was born. That, that happens to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> I was absolutely over the moon when he was born. And I said, right, I'm coming up. And I... I literally ruined that fall because everyone hated him because I, I used to go in the field with all the mares and foals and sit and play with him in the field. But he became that friendly that no one else could get in the field because <laughs> <laughs> he was just there. He was just, he were, yeah, he become like the biggest character ever because I just, wow, playing with him. I've got videos of him playing with numb on my chair and all sorts of stuff. And I were like, in my head, I knew that I was going to drive this horse. I think everyone else just thought I had a little baby to play with. If I'm honest, I think that, well, even they'll say now, I didn't expect this to happen. So for about the first three or four months of his life, I just played with him and just side field. And, and that were better than riding, than driving to me, just having that time and knowing that I was going to bring this horse up myself. I didn't know how. I didn't know what we were going to do when, when it got bigger or what hour we were going to break it or anything, but I just enjoyed the moment. And he then got turned away to go be his be a, a foal and a horse and stuff. And he got brought back as a yearling and I did little bits with him then and he come down as a yearling and he were a different animal. They were they were mental. And then he went away again and I got poorly again and I, and then I was poorly quite severely I got sepsis um, and I was in hospital and I'd been to, I was at college at the time when I went to because I thought I want a normal life and I want a job and all this sort of thing and I ended up getting sepsis and really really ill and he were coming up to two years old and in hospital when I come round, I said to my mum and dad I said he's coming up to two now which is the age I got my youngster when I was 13 and I said I want to do something with him because I'm I, I'm not I'm sick of picking horses up and doing it in between. It wasn't like I could ever get fully back into it, like when I were able-bodied. So I was getting bored of that. And I, I says, I'm wasting my life. And the only thing that actually has made me happy is when Majesty were born. As much as I love driving Isaac, it wasn't, I don't know, it was were, it were brilliant, but it wasn't. It, were, it reminded me a lot. I, wanted, I always wanted more, basically. So... I says to my mum, I says, I, I had a bungalow with a garden. And I said, I need to find some land near this bungalow. So I put out some land to rent. And my mum had bred a horse at the same time as Majestic. So she had Star and I had Majestic. And I says, can we move him to a field near my house? I said, and I'll employ someone to bring him round every day. And I'm just going to mess about with him and get him get him ready for the world and let him start seeing stuff and start leading him and making sure that he, he understands me and my chair. So I did that. I rented some land near my house and literally brought him back to my garage and got a tie ring put up in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he, he used to come round and, oh, it was frustrating. Then. And that's when everyone started saying to me, this is not right. You've got a two-year-old. He's quite big. We're about 14 to at that time but you know what two-year-olds are like and 
he, he were wild. He were absolutely wild. And he'd come round and he'd throw himself all over and try to tie him up and he'd barge into my chair and he'd stand me and I can't feel my legs. So I wasn't that bothered about him standing up with me. <laughs> no, but he were, he were mental. Um, and I used to go in and go, no, I'll handle this. And I'd cry and I'd think, I've told everyone I'm going to drive this horse. How the hell am I going to do it? <laughs> <laughs> like I used to say I, to everybody else, I was going, "Yep, yep, I'm going to drive it to myself on a night." I was thinking, "I have no idea how I'm going to do this," but I persevered and persevered and persevered, and I just started leading him and making him stay on the left side of me, uh, side of my chair. And when my chair stopped, he'd stop and just spent days like that and brushing him. And eventually, it became well, they do, don't they? They get used to it. And then one day we're just eating grass on my garden and I moved and he followed me. Literally just just like that. I, I wheeled off and he just, everywhere I went, he was by my side. And that day, honestly, it, it felt like I had a purpose again. I had, I had so much to focus on and I were me again. I'd made this horse. He were only two years old. He wasn't broke or anything, but I'd made him have this bond with me and I'd taught him something and I thought I'm not useless anymore because that's what I felt. I felt useless. So it, I ran it gave you purpose. Dad, right? It gave me purpose to get up every day and and actually, because it were all right driving Isaac down the road, but I need I need to know I'm doing some good with them. I know I want to I want to build a relationship. I want to teach them ground manners. I want to then school them. I want to, I want to do that. I'm, I've never been a happy hacker. So being turned into this happy hacker on Isaac, which, yeah, were great at the beginning, but I were actually teaching Majestic again. And so that made me feel like me, if you know what I mean. And then when he followed me and actually started doing that, it was like a little love story. So it was even more emotional. How do you make the transition from there to driving because you, you had these plans but yeah, there's some so, logistics involved with that so t tell us how that came about as far as you know getting a carriage built for you so when he when he followed me i rang my mum and i said i need to buy i need to sell my house and buy a little stable yard oh gosh <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what every mother wants to hear <laughs> <laughs> so she were like, well, how the hell are you going to muck out? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? And I went, I don't know. But I didn't know I was going to do this and we're here. So we, I need to do this. So I put my house up for sale. And, um, yeah, I said, I'll, I'll employ people. I don't know how. I didn't know logistics. So I didn't know anything. But I just thought, do you know what? You only live once. And I knew it was the only thing that was going to make me happy. And to drive him. How was I going to adapt somewhere, get a carriage, do it all from my garden? It, it's impossible. So anyway, cutting a long story short, I did just that and um, got a little yard with a couple of stables on and moved my horses there. And then um, I did some more driving on Isaac, carried on with Majestic, um, and I started, I started questioning about the carriage driving trials and I rang that many places, and no one knew anything about it. And I was just getting passed from pillar to post, from pillar to post, and I ended up putting a Facebook status on saying, how the hell do I get into competing? Because I am at the end of my tether. 
I said, I'm getting majestic broken soon. Trying to find someone to break him actually took courage. So we did loads of long reigning. I lunged him. My mum had long reign him. I'd be the voice. We did all that for ages. And then I'd ask people to break him in for me. And they'd all go, no, I can't have nothing to do with that. I can't see you on a Frisian. I can't see you on this big R with one arm. That's ridiculous. I can't do it. And it wasn't even, I don't think it was, you know, people going, no, I'm not doing it. I think they were genuinely worried for me sure so we asked loads and loads and loads and no one did and then i finally found someone to send him away to so we'd done all the groundwork but me and my mum were riders we didn't know how to break the car so i just needed him literally putting in a car so in the meantime he went away i put this facebook status on i ended up getting told about carriage driving trials when i met pat cooper and she changed my life i said to her i've got this frisian and she looked at me she says have you ever done driving trials i was like no nope, i don't know anything about <laughs> nope. it i don't know any rules i don't know nothing what it entails but i've got this this young frisian i said he's away getting broken a minute and i bet she thought are you are you having a laugh <laughs> so she says well you need some start on <laughs> So you need something to start on. And I was like, well, it's fine. I said, I've got a cob pony. I said, I can start on that, but I will end up on Majestic. But we'll start on the pony. That's fine. So she says, well, you need a carriage. So I was like, right, okay. She says, and you can't drive from your wheelchair. Um, You need to obviously get in the carriage. You need a seat and da 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 So we found... Janet, who was a massive part of my life anyway, and who got me the Frisian, told me about Isaac Stewart. So I rings Isaac and I says, um, he, he makes carts. I said, right. I said, I've got a really thing for you here. I said, but I need a cart adapting. I want to adapt him for a Frisian. I've got one arm <laughs> um, and I don't know how I'm getting on this carriage, but I need a competition carriage making. And he was like, well, what even is this phone call? And I was like, right, I said, well, I want to compete. I said, but, yeah, it needs to. we need to find a way to make me a seat that will sort of hold me so I don't just flop out because I've got no car. And we also need to find a way to get me on it. So <laughs> between us, eventually, we come up with a car winch and a frame went over the carriage like a swing, a swing frame, and a car winch that got hooked up to a leisure battery. And he made me a seat that tipped back and a foot plate, so my feet still can hold me in, but it's tipped back a little bit is the seat. So, yeah, he thought I was mental, and I was like, but I am going to drive this Frisian. And he went, to be honest with you, after everything I've just heard and all this time that went through adapting this carriage, he went, I think you're going to drive that Frisian. But anyway, I um, within two months of me, three months of meeting Pat, I were at my first competition on the pony. Wow. I got on that carriage and that's when things sort of, yeah, took a change. I was back in an arena doing, I had to do dressage cones and obstacles in indoors. And our crap, I took every ball down now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even great now, but I was really bad then. Um, 
But yeah, I, I, it was just like, I'd still come out going, yeah, I'll be champion one day. It didn't <laughs> matter, <just> right? <laughs> it didn't matter. I just thought, you know, I'm here and I'm doing it. And I would never have done that a few years before because I was so anti-disabled and I didn't want to use a hoist and everything else. But I just thought Majestic made me want to get on him that much that I didn't really care how I had to do it. I, it just got in my head that one day I'm going to drive this horse. So I did a few competitions on Isaac and got bored, as I did. And um, I rang Pat and Majestic came back from being broken. So we were broken to carriage now. And they said to me, don't you drive him. He's not great in traffic. Not yet. Let someone else, you know, get him used to it, doing stuff. I let my mum drive him twice and I were on him. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> I was like, nope, it's my horse. And to be fair, my mum said, that horse trusts you. And he does. And, I, I, you know, before I would have probably said, yeah, whatever. But he is, he's like a big Labrador. He honestly, he follows me like a dog. I can, he, he is vulture and he can be, he, has, he needs telling and putting his place. But if you're an horse person, whether you're in a chair or not, you, you can read them, can't you? And you can do things. And, I um, started driving him, and I was scared the first time, and especially I got on him in my arena, and it went from, like, when I drove Pony, it felt like an Olympic-sized arena. I got a Majestic in there, and it, like, shrunk. I did two steps, and I were at end, and I was like, oh, no, how am I even going to do this? I loved the feeling, but also I were a bit like, yeah, this is different now. I've got one arm, and how am I going to do it? But I didn't – I missed a massive part out of this. Pat made me use my arm, my bad arm. She managed to get a bungee around my wrist because she saw I had a little bit of movement in my right arm. And we adapted it so that I can actually pull my right arm. So, yeah, I can actually use two arms. It's not, I do have to take over with my left arm a lot, but I do actually have two arms. And that must have been incredible for you to just have any ability to use that, right? It was amazing because doing one arm, it felt so unnatural. And having the two arms, although I can't use it brilliantly and it's about as much use as an ashtray on a motorbike in normal day-to-day life, on the horse, it actually helps out massively. And it were, yeah, it were a great feeling. Absolutely great. to. It were a lot of work to work out the coordination again and all that sort of things. But I absolutely loved it, being able to do it. So... After a few competitions on Isaac, like, say, I rang Pat and I said, I'm on this Frisian. Can I bring him? And she was like, I don't know if you're ready. I said, listen, just let me bring him for a lesson. So just one lesson. I said, and see what you think. So I took him and she went, he's really good, isn't he? I went, yeah, see, I told you. I said, just let me take it. And then everyone were like, oh, face, scared me on that horse. Not that it done no major. I think it was just the fact that I am literally quite... I have got severe disabilities, so it is a bit worrying. But like I said, I said, you know, I rode crazy mental horses and I broke my back in a car. So I ain't going to stop doing this. So you're all just going to have to get used to it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Basically. So a few people said that I needed to let other people take him to his first competition because obviously this is a, a, a young horse a sporty horse, a powerful horse, and you're taking him to an indoor competition where all these things are going on and da 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 da. But I didn't. I took him myself to the first competition, and I've, I, I'm the only one that's ever competed him since. 
So where are you guys at in your in your journey today? What kinds of things are you guys working on? And how and how old is he now? So he's eight now. We're still not brilliant because Frisians are really hard work in the fact of the way they can bend and and do things. So when you haven't got when you haven't got both your arms and you haven't got the stability in your car to hold yourself up and hold them, it's pretty difficult. It is difficult to drive. If you've got Frisians, anyone will know that they can twist the neck, can't they? And so it's very difficult, but I'm getting there and I won't give up on him no matter what, even though it's because it is hard work. And I probably, if I'd have chosen a different breed, I'd have got where I, you know, I'd been a lot higher. But he's a baby. I've done it all myself. And, and that's the biggest thing to me. So I'm just going to continue to keep going. I'm going to, I've done all this outdoor season. He's got one left, but he has actually gone lame at the minute. But he's going to be, I'm going to carry on and work and work and work and, and get as far as I can possibly get with him. How old was uh, Majestic when you first competed with him? Four and a half. So you've been, you've been competing with him for uh, three and a half years now, more or less. Well, I have, but COVID happened didn't it oh yeah I started with him and then we had COVID so that were uh, two years off and then last season I was just about to start and I had a fall off him Um, so it wanted a barrel got stuck under my carriage and tipped me oh geez I was at home doing some practicing and I got tipped out in front of a fence and I broke three bones and he pulled a ligament because he panicked after I fell off. So he must have pulled the ligament. So we missed all last season. Um, and this has been our first season. And we're holding a zone in dressage. We do really well. We do, And I'm competing able-bodied. So I'm not competing against anyone disabled at the minute. I, it is all able-bodied. We're holding a zone. It's just it's going to take time. So this has actually only been our first season in the eight years, full season. So we've got plenty more to do. So you've developed quite a love affair with this Frisian horse. They're a charismatic horse. Uh, I would suspect you would recommend them to people because of their personalities and so on, right? Yeah, oh, 100%. I think the thing with them is they are a one. I mean, I've got six horses now and I drive three. But Majestic is they're just a different sort of breed, like... The bond that you can get with them, and they're so trusting. If you can gain the trust of a Frisian, you've got something for life. A hundred percent. Well, I've got Ioni's mum as well, and she's the same. They are a different, a total different breed to any other, and they're so loyal and trusting. And if if you can build it, you've got something that'll keep you safe. I think. Well, that's what uh, I think. That's kind of a universal uh, appraisal of of Frisian horses is that. You've seen it firsthand now, how uh, human-oriented they are. Yeah, they are. It makes for a great partnership, especially in somebody that's in your your situation. Yeah, they're just, they are, and they're so playful and so loving, so loving. He has not gotten, him and his mom, both of them are so loving and so the characters in their own rights they don't have a dull moment do they they just they are like a person or a dog they are they literally are yeah 
But yeah, he's changed my life a bit. Well, I, I have to say, he's the horse that definitely made my life worth living. This has uh, been a, an inspiring story of uh, highs and lows, and, and, the, and the path you're on now is, again, very inspiring for anybody who's had a personal challenge, whether it be physical or mental, and, and how, um, how much a Frisian horse can uh, change your life. It's, it's been very inspiring. I think they're a very underestimated breed. I really do, because a lot of people... Some think that the Baggio, the, the, I don't know. I Through the times, people have thought, well, um, I've had a lot of negatives. Not now. A lot of people have won a lot of people over with him. But I've had a lot of negatives about them. But I think it's they're, they're just unbelievable. And they are a breed, I would say, will give you their all. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, and yeah, I will. And it might not be a world beater. It might not have, but I, I'm doing demos and I'm doing school talks now. Schools are wanting me to go in to talk, and I've got a demo in a couple of weeks if he's all right to do it on him. And, you know, to prove that no matter how you feel today, that there is always tomorrow, and you have to keep fighting no matter what. You've got to find something that you truly want to do and just keep keep at it. I have to say, while we were preparing for this episode and, and, and for everybody out there, if you, I'll ask you to repeat this information at the end of the episode, Faye, but so you can tell people where they can find you guys at and see your videos, but you've got, you've kind of documented your whole journey with him in videos. And I have to tell you, I mean, it just made me sob. And I thought going into this episode, I thought, okay, my goal today is not to cry, you know, not to lose it while you're telling your story, but you made us laugh over and over again. And I think that that is, that speaks to your determination and your spirit and the courage and heart that you have. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't always used to be like this. And that's what I say to people, you know, when you're in a hard time, because a lot of people say, but you deal with it fine. So yeah, but I've, and I do, I, I, I do, I've learned that laughing about situations, you have to laugh no matter what. How bad it gets, I will always try and find the funny side of it because it helps me. Um, and that many things go wrong in my life. Bloody hell, my, you know, my chair's not breaking or <laughs> so much going on. Honestly, but it is a sad story what happened to me. And it's horrible what did happen, but I've made a brilliant, brilliant life that I wouldn't give up now. And, and the horse has got a lot to do with it. And life is what you make it, no matter what. Well, I think that's. I, th I think the fact that that you're being invited to as a guest speaker, the fact that that we're talking to you, hopefully offers uh, assistance to people who are faced with challenges in their life and they don't turn to alternative methods of dealing with it, i.e., drugs or alcohol, yeah. and that there are ways to deal with uh, challenges in life that are that can be inspirational to a lot of people and helpful to to the individual or his or herself. That I did turn to drink and I did rebel and I did do things and now people say I'm obsessive um, in what I do and I am but it's a good obsession rather than the bad. Do you know what I mean? So yes, like I'm yes. obsessive with drinking and, and making them choices and doing stupid things. Now the way I keep going is to keep focused on, on no matter what my end goal and I set little ones all the time and I have decided to drive other horses to to help me drive Majestic. And it's all about that. I mean, the biggest thing that my challenge, and it'll be for a lot of people, is is funding. 
And the money that luckily I've gained people that have supported me because they've seen the passion in me and seen the love and the determination. A lot of people help me out voluntarily because I can't afford, you know, to to pay masses of money and get into competitions and all that sort of stuff. And it is a constant battle for me to get about massively, you know, getting wagon drivers to get here and there. I don't just have someone and I can't drive the wagon. It's It's always a constant battle. But I just keep thinking, but, you know, I'll do it. And, and it's problem solving. And maybe that's why I do keep going, because I've always got to problem solve. But you've just, you can cry and you can have a moan, but just don't stay there and, and think about all the positives, not just the negatives. I think that's the biggest thing. Well, it's okay to be obsessed, but your, your obsession is a, is a constructive obsession versus a destructive obsession. That speaks volumes for where you can go from here. Angie wants to get back on track here, so go ahead, Angie. (laughs) Yeah, we're almost out of time. So I wanted to ask you about your goal to secure a sponsorship and become a motivational speaker. Are you already doing some speaking engagements? Where can people find more information about you and get in touch with you? So, yes, I did my first big speaking event um, last week, and it was amazing out First time I actually spoke and told my story on a stage. So I'm hoping more comes from it. And that were, yeah, the audience were laughing and then crying. And, and, and it is something I want to do. So the word's getting out and I'm doing it in schools. And But mainly people are finding me through my social media, um, which is now, it used to be Majestic and Me Dream Big. But now it's Majestic Equine because I've got more than more than majestic but he's still always going to be my main one so it's majestic equine one life dream but oh no majestic equine one life or something it's majestic equine anyway i can't remember which one put but yeah majestic equine on insta tiktok and facebook and yeah find me anywhere there and i've I've documented literally every step of it yeah i can't tell everyone enough please take a look at that i think you'll you'll find it very inspiring And I also wanted to ask you, what would you like people to know about resilience in these kind of situations, whether they're able-bodied or paralyzed? What's the one thing, if somebody comes to one of your motivational speaking engagements, that you want them to go home with? That you can't look at the time. You can't think that everything's going to happen overnight and you're going to feel better just there and then. It's a long, long road. But you can make anything you want to make, anything. Because if I can do it with one arm and and do the battles that I've had to do, and fe- you're going to feel emotions. That's the thing. And you're going to have ups and downs and life ain't rosy and there's always problems. But if you can just stick with it and little and often, you can make anything you want to do. But you've got to love what you want to do as well. And specifically, Scott and I both have friends, Frisian friends especially, that have been in accidents where they're driving or riding um, and they've suffered an injury do you think it's ever possible to feel like it's not you know achievable to come back from that like I can never ride again I can never drive I can never have horses in my life still if somebody's out there and they're listening to this and they're in the midst of those emotions themselves what would you say to them that no you can do it no matter what but finding you don't have to be told which way to go. So I was a show jumper, show jumping were everything I wanted to do. And 
I left that where it was and I tried something different and I love it just as much. But you don't have to give horses up. Just find a different route or find a different thing if you need to or try to get back in it. But the fact is there's no – I will not stop. I fell off, like I say, last year and broke three bones and I was back on within eight weeks. It's all right looking at things and thinking, yeah, but this could happen or, yeah, but that could happen. Yeah, but anything could happen. If you want to do it, do it no matter what. My takeaway on this is that you're counseling patients. And, uh, man, I get in line on the people who have told me to be patient. So hopefully this will have an impact on <laughs> Angie knows. Hopefully this will have, an imp- it will have an impact on me and say, Scott, be patient. Oh, God. Yeah, that's right. I'll yeah, but if, you talk to my, if you talk to my friends, they'll all say I don't have any patience. <laughs> so, oh, you guys should okay, get together. All of a sudden, I yeah, I have perseverance and I keep going, but I, I, I'm not the patientest person in the world, but I just have to keep going. Sure, sure. Well, Faye, I have to tell you, this was so amazing. I think you can't have the highs without the lows in this story. And I think it's amazing that, you know, you had the goal of having this majestic Frisian that you were going to drive with and you know, you made it happen. All that came true and you guys are out there doing it. You're inspiring people and you're also a wonderful, wonderful ambassador for the Frisian breed. I think it's, you know, all the things that Scott and you talked about, about the testament of the the disposition and the character, this golden character of this breed is is a wonderful way to highlight it in your story. So thank you so much for being here with us. No, thank you for having me, and thanks. It's something that, like I say, I do want to get into more and, and get the story out there because I know there's so many people that will be suffering, and it's only the stubbornness in me and, and having that. But it took me years. I might have been there a bit sooner if someone were out there with that bit of knowledge, you know, of how to do it. So thank you. I've seen the quote that one day someone will read about your story and it will become their survival guide. And for somebody listening to this, that very well may be true. So again, thank you. You're you're truly inspiring. Thank you very much. Thank you, Faye. Good luck and God bless you on your journey. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you'll join us soon for another episode of The Frisian Advocate. Do you have a Frisian story to tell? Email us at info at fenwayfoundation.com and we'll add you to the lineup.